Good morning, church. Good morning. Joy to be with you this morning. It's been an incredibly welcoming uh, church to me, so I just wanted to start off by saying thank you just for being so warm and welcoming. Um, I just feel like I belong here. I feel feel very welcomed here, so thank you, and, um, and well done as well. That's something that uh, Christ has commanded us to do, to be a welcoming church, so uh, I want to commend you on that and also thank you this morning. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Colossians 2. We'll be in Colossians 2, uh, starting in verse 6, and then going through chapter 3, verse 4 this morning. Last week, my wife and I watched one of our all-time favorite movies, which is the Disney animated classic, The Lion King. All-time favorite. I'm sure a lot of you have probably seen it. Um, in case you haven't, I'll catch you up to speed a little bit. Um, as I was reading this passage for today, I was reminded of this movie, uh, and I had to go watch it again. It was just, the more I read this passage, the more um, it, just, it kept reminding me of this movie, um, and then vice, vice versa as well. So what it is, the story of The Lion King centers on Simba, who is the son of the king, and therefore the future king. Now the problem in the story is that the king's rejected brother, Scar, is jealous of the king, he's jealous of Simba, and so he develops this evil plot to kill the king and to run Simba out of town. So he sets up this tragic event, and he's successful. So he kills the king, runs Simba out of town. Simba joins up with this uh, fun-loving couple of friends, Timon and Pumbaa, whose uh, motto is Hakuna Matata, no worries. Now the turning point in the story uh, comes when a, a close childhood friend of Simba's, Nala, visits him and reminds him who he is. She reminds him, Simba, you are the king. And he says, no, no, I'm not. Maybe, maybe I used to be, but that was a long time ago. That's not who I am anymore. So the, pro the problem is that Simba has forgotten his story. He's forgotten who he is. And he's allowed this false story of Hakuna Matata, no worries, to be the new story that he lives by. That's the driving factor in his life now, just no worries however I want to live. And then he's reminded later in the story, remember who you are. And it's more dramatic when James Earl Jones does it, if you remember the movie, remember, I can't even do it, but <laughs> remember who you are. Remember that you are the king. And he remembers, he buys into it, and so that, that's the turning point of the story, really. He, he remembers that he's the king, and everything changes in an instant. So one moment, he's living in the woods, basically the homeless guy, eating bugs with his friends, and the next moment, he's the king over everything the light touches. All because he remembered the true story of who he was, and he allowed that to transform the way that he saw his life. So in our passage today in Colossians 2, Paul reminds us of the story, the true story, the greatest story ever told. So we'll look at this passage in three chunks today. In the first chunk, we'll look at what Paul says about the story, and the second one, we'll look at what Paul says about false stories, 
And then in the third chunk, we'll look at what Paul says about actually living in the story. So look with me at Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. That's our first chunk. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority, you are also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So Paul begins a major new section of the letter, the letter to the Colossians in verse 6 here. And he begins by telling them, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And today we talk about receiving Christ as Lord, uh, and by that we usually mean something like receiving Christ in our hearts or acknowledging Christ to be Lord of our lives. When Paul says receive uh, Christ as Lord, when he uses this word through his letters, he's talking about receiving uh, the teaching of, of Christ, the teaching about who Christ is, what he's done for us, the teaching passed down by the apostles, including Paul, but ultimately the teaching from God himself, what God has told us about himself and who he is, the story of Christ and from Christ. And then in verse 8, he warns them, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy based on human tradition. And this word philosophy, uh, we, we use it today just to mean kind of thinking about life and um, deep thoughts, I guess. Um, and Paul's day was a little bit different. It, it was basically a catch-all word for different religions and cults and worldviews. So kind of all these different stories floating around about where the world comes from, who we are, why it matters, how we're supposed to live. So when Paul says, uh, don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy, he's saying, don't buy into another story. You have received the, the story from Christ, the story about who you are. So don't let anyone trick you into buying into this man-made story that someone somewhere just made up. And then look at what Paul does next in verses 9 to 15. He reminds them of the story. And Paul is a great storyteller. He, he uses vivid 
images when he tells this story. So you were buried with Christ and raised with Christ. God nailed your debt to the cross. He triumphed over the devil. And this term triumph, it's more than just victory. It's in this culture, when the Roman army would defeat an enemy, the emperor would take uh, the, the opposing king who had been defeated and strip him naked and parade them through the streets with his entire army. It was this big spectacle. It happened hundreds of times every time Rome would defeat an enemy. And the church that he's writing to is in a Roman city. So they, they knew this. When he said, um, verse 15, when he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, he triumphed over them, that's what he's saying, that God made such a fool of the devil. It's like the emperor does with these kings when he defeats them, that he just parades them vulnerable through the streets. What a great story. What a fascinating story. But it's more than just a story. It's our story. It's your story. If you are in Christ, you are living in this story. That's the incredible truth about the Christian life, that Christ has entered into our world, and he has brought us into his story. As St. Athanasius famously put, it, famously put it, an early Christian writer, he became a human so that we might become like God. And that quote really captures the essence of what Paul is saying in these verses. He became a human so that we might become like God. So look in these verses, follow along with me, look in these verses at what happens to us and what happens to Christ. So in verse 12, you were buried with him. So Christ died and we died. Christ was buried and we were buried. And then in verse 13, he made you alive with him. And then back in the second half of verse 12, you were also raised with him. So Christ was made alive, and we were made alive. And Christ was raised from the grave, and we were raised from the grave. And now we'll skip ahead real quick to chapter 3, verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then the next verse, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So having been raised from the dead, Christ lives, and we live. And Christ will appear in glory, and we will appear with him in glory. It's an incredible story, and God has invited us intricately into, the, into a part of the story with Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Amen. We are invited into the story. And in a sense, we live out the story with Christ. And then do you remember how the story started? Paul tells us in these verses how the story started for Christ and how it started for us. So in verse 9, he says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the beginning of the story for Christ, he was one with the Father in heaven, fully God. And then the next part of the story for Christ, he dies and then is raised back 
to life. But do you remember how the story started for us? He tells us in these verses, in verse 13. And you were dead in trespasses. So at the beginning of the story, Christ is the fullness of God, and we are dead. And then at the next stage, both of us are buried, and together we are raised back to life. We have truly been, bought, been brought into the greatest story ever told. We'll move on now to our second chunk of verses. So in the first chunk, Paul, Paul has just reminded us about the story. But remember his warning in verse 8. He kind of got ahead of himself there. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. So Paul was worried about the Colossians. He knew that they knew the true story, but he also knew that they were being persuaded to buy into false stories. So in our second chunk, Paul confronts these false stories head on, and he shows how empty and worthless they are in light of the true story. So our next chunk is verses 16 through 23, if you'll follow along with me. Therefore, Remember, he's just told the story. He's just reminded them of the true story. Therefore, in, in other words, in light of that story, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So the false story that Paul refers to here uh, is known as the Colossian heresy, this false story that the church uh, was being taught, or was at least trying to be taught. And New Testament scholars argue over what exactly the Colossian heresy was. It's, it's pretty clear from these verses. We can get a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, the, scholars like to use big words um, to, use, to refer to simple concepts. So the idea of what's going on, they call ascetic Jewish mysticism. That's a big phrase. It's really simple actually. Um, three parts. So ascetic, meaning they were denying themselves of basic things. So don't, don't eat these foods, don't drink these drinks, and then you'll be more spiritual. Jewish, meaning that they're holding to traditional Jewish customs. So they mention uh, the moons, the Sabbath observances, these different festivals. So they kind of brought in some old Jewish traditions. And then mysticism, so these, these extra spiritual experiences, uh, they talk about worship of angels, 
access to a visionary realm, so some kind of super spiritual, supernatural experience. So aesthetic Jewish mysticism. Uh, you can kind of think of it, I, I, at least I like to think of it, as this forerunner to like new age teaching that we have today. It's kind of this bizarre hybrid of all these religions. We'll take a little Judaism, we'll take a little mysticism over here and just throw in some practices from other places. Um, it's just kind of this bizarre hybrid. So that was the false story then, the Colossian heresy. And the church was being persuaded by it, taken captive, as Paul says. But we have plenty of our own false stories today. We'll look at three of them this morning. And it's important to be aware of these false stories. It's really easy for us to read the letter to the Colossians and wonder why in the world would anyone ever be persuaded by this? It just, it seems absurd, right? The worship of angels, access to this visionary realm, you're going to be more spiritual by observing the moons and just not eating these foods. It seems really strange to us, but it obviously made a lot of sense to the Colossians because Paul, Paul is worried about them. Because the difference is they lived in a culture where that made sense. This false story was tempting to them to believe because it made sense in their culture. And so in our culture, we have our own stories that make a lot more sense to us and we're a lot more tempted to buy into them. So we'll look at a few of them this morning. The first false story uh, is probably best captured by the quote, be true to yourself. We hear this all the time, right? You have to be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself and nothing will ever go wrong. And in a sense, this is good advice, depending on what we mean by it, right? If you, if you just mean, don't be something you're not, or don't put up this false persona, then it's good advice. You know, we shouldn't do that. But in our culture today, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So be true to yourself means something like follow your heart. Do what you want to do with your life, not what anyone else tells you to do. So here's some ways that I've heard it used. Don't let your parents tell you where you should go to school. You have to be true to yourself. Don't let your friends tell you who you should or shouldn't date or who you should or shouldn't hang around with. You have to be true to yourself. Well, I have to get this divorce. I just don't feel the same way about him that I used to. I have to be true to myself. The problem, of course, is that this is a false story. If our culture today still holds one thing as an absolute truth, it's that you have complete authority over your own life, and no one else has any right to interfere with that. But this is a false story, right? God created you out of nothing and breathed life into you. If you're a Christian, then Jesus Christ is the Lord over your life and has complete authority over your life. If you're a member of this church, God has placed you in this church with authorities in the form of your pastors and your elders at this church. He's given us parents. He's given us government. If you're married, the Bible says that the husband has authority over his wife and the wife has authority over her husband. It's amazing, really, that we're so tempted to buy into this false story. God doesn't tell you to be true to yourself. God tells you to become more and more like Christ. He tells you to obey his good commands, even if you don't want to. He tells you to submit to your church authorities, to obey your parents, to give yourself up for your husband or your wife. 
And when you think about it, he almost tells us the exact opposite of be true to yourself. So here's what all this means for us. When we make important decisions in our life, we have to be really careful that we're not buying into this false story and not living according to the story of Christ. So for teenagers, this might mean that you listen to your parents or your pastor when they say that you shouldn't be dating that guy or that girl. For adults, it might mean that you don't buy that bigger house or that nicer car that you really don't need, but instead invest your money in the kingdom of God. If you're married and having trouble in your marriage or having these feelings that, um, you know, I just don't feel the same way about them that I did when we were dating. I don't have those butterflies in my stomach anymore. It might mean that you stick it out in your marriage because of what God has said about marriage, not because of what you have decided that you feel. Our culture tells us it probably be true to yourself may, maybe applies more to marriage than anything else. It seems like our culture tells us constantly that marriage is just, it, it's for your own good, right? It's to make you more happy. And if you're not, if you're not quite as happy as you thought you were going to be, well, then just get out of it. But Christ tells us that marriage is the, the one flesh union of the husband and the wife. And what God has brought together, let no person separate. So if you're being true to yourself, maybe you get the divorce. If you're being true to Christ, then you stick it out in the marriage and live according to the rules and to the basic story of life that Christ has given us. So that's, that's one false story. And we're, we're definitely more vulnerable to that, right? We, we can see how it's wrong, but when we think about it, we probably make decisions a lot of times based on, well, I've got to be true to myself. And so it's one that it definitely persuades us at least more than the Colossian heresy. So the second type of false story in our culture today is the political narratives that we hear. And I'm sure we've noticed the political spectrum has become more and more polarized in recent years. Not that it wasn't before, but recently it's even more so. So that it's not enough to just vote for one candidate anymore. You have to fully endorse everything that candidate does and demonize the other candidate as the worst person who ever lived. And toward that end, both of the political parties have developed these stories about who we are, where we come from, where we're headed. So from political conservatives, we hear this narrative uh, that we might call God and country that kind of tries to present this idealistic view of American history. And so it minimizes bad things from our history like the forced removal of Native Americans, enslavement of African Americans, and then it tries to maximize the fact that the Founding Fathers believed in God, and it just says, if we can just get back to the good old days of God and country, then everything would be right. And so it puts its hope in this idealistic view of, of American history, of, of who we are, and it just says, this is our hope right here, and so vote for this candidate. And then from political progressives, the main narrative is what we might call this myth of secular progress. So this one isn't so concerned with presenting an idealistic view of American history, but of American progress. And so this one would say, well, 150 years ago, we were enslaving African Americans and refusing women the right to vote. Look how far we've come. We just have to keep on this trajectory of freedom and equality, and everything will be like it should be. 
And it seems more and more frequently that's with no reference to God at all. And so this narrative puts its hope in its own ability to create this sort of utopia for our country. And it's actually fascinating, as I thought about this, you know, we hear some version of these stories in every single presidential campaign, basically. But if you think about our last two especially, that Donald Trump campaigned on Make America Great Again, so it's this appeal to this narrative about history, about our great past, and then before that, Barack Obama campaigned on Yes, We Can. So that's thinking toward the future. We can do it. You know, as Christians, we have to reject both of these narratives. And that doesn't mean that we can't support one candidate, that we can't vote for one candidate. We should still participate in voting. We should still think these things through and be, be diligent to, um, to be involved in our country. But you, you can vote for a Republican candidate without buying into this false story that the party sells. You can vote for a Democrat candidate without buying into this false story that the party sells. As Christians, we already have a story. God has chosen the church of Jesus Christ to be his people. The church of Jesus Christ, not the United States of America. And God brings progress through his Holy Spirit and the witness of his church, not through secular political policies. The myth of God and country and the myth of secular progress are both false stories, just like the Colossian heresy that Paul warns the Colossians against here. And as a church, we have to be wise enough and discerning enough to know that. We have to be faithful enough to continue to live in the tradition of Christ that we received. So that's the second false story today. A third false story of our culture today is one that cultural researchers have come to call moralistic therapeutic deism. There we go again, right? Experts coming up with big words for simple concepts. We'll break it down. So deism just means this belief that there's a God out there. He created the world, but he kind of stays uninvolved now. He's just out there in the sky somewhere. He basically just lets us live our lives how we choose. And then therapeutic, meaning that God basically just wants us to feel good about ourselves and to be happy. That's pretty much all God wants from us. Other than moralistic, he wants us to be good people and to follow this certain set of rules that he's given. And so researchers surveyed thousands of American citizens, and they determined that this moralistic, therapeutic deism is basically how most Americans think about God and religion in general. So God's just sort of out there in the sky, and he wants us to be comfortable and happy and to follow his rules. But that is a false story. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is extremely involved in our lives, so much so that he became a human so that we might become like God. Remember, in Christ, we died with him. We were buried with him. We were made alive with him. We were raised with him. We live with him. And we, were, we are glorified with him. He's extremely involved in our lives. Amen. The God of the Bible is also concerned about a lot more than just our happiness or our comfort. He wants us to become like him. If you're a parent, then you understand this better than anyone else in the room. I am a parent now, which is cool to say, but I probably don't quite understand this yet. But as a parent, your, your, greatest, your highest desire is not for your child's happiness. That sounds terrible to say, so let me, let me explain that real quick. 
Your greatest concern is not for your child's happiness, it's for your child's good, right? So at this moment, maybe the one thing that would make your child happier than anything else in the world would be to eat a five pound Hershey's bar in one sitting. <laughs> happier than anything else in the world. But as a parent, you're not going to let them do that because you don't want them to be happy, right? No, of course not. Because you're concerned about what's good for them and you know, maybe from experience, that eating a five pound Hershey's bar in one sitting is not good for them. And our God's the same way with us. He's not, his highest concern for us is not for our happiness. It's for our good. Sometimes those line up, sometimes they don't, but his greatest concern for us is for our good. So he wants us more than, to be more than just happy. And then the God of the Bible is, of course, concerned with us being moral people, being good people. But it's more than just following these rules, which is how a lot of Americans think about God. He, he wants us to become the sort of people that just naturally act like him. So we're transformed. We're born again. We become new people who just more and more naturally want the things that he wants and naturally live like he lived. So moralistic therapeutic deism is a false story. And it's one that our culture really buys into, so it's all around us. And we have to be really careful not to fall for it. When we make decisions that we know deep down in our gut are wrong, but we think something like, well, I have to make myself happy, and God wants me to be happy too. When we reason like that in the back of our minds, we're buying into this false story. Actually, we're buying into that one and the be true to yourself story, that I just have to be true to myself and make myself happy, right? It takes wisdom, not only to see these stories in our culture as they come up in our lives, but to know how to separate the false story from the true story. And that comes from experience. More and more, we should be living according to the story that we've received from Christ. So watch out for these stories. If you pay attention, they are all around you. You'll see them almost every single day in one form or another pop up. They're just woven into the very fabric of our culture, just like the Colossian heresy was woven into the very fabric of what was going on in their lives. And stories are powerful, aren't they? Stories are powerful. John Quincy Adams once said, whoever tells the best story wins. It's a simple statement, but there's a lot of truth to it. And so why companies show advertisements in a way that tries to tell a good story. Whoever tells the best story wins. That's why the political parties try to tell a better story. Whoever tells the best story wins. It's just part of human nature. We just love stories. We're so affected by stories. You know, we love to sit around the campfire and tell stories. Maybe not right now. It's a little cold, but... When it's not this cold, we love to sit around the campfire and tell stories. We love, at Christmas time, to hear that story about that crazy thing that Uncle So-and-So did back in the day in Christmas of whatever year it was. We just love, we love stories, especially when we're in them. And that's why it's important. That's why it's so important to remind ourselves of the story that God has invited us into. One theologian made the comment that when you separate doctrine from the story, it just becomes sort of empty, just like a list of math formulas. So if we say God loves you, 
well, that's nice. I don't really know what that means, right? Who is God? How do I know he loves me? What, what, is, what has he shown me? To, what does that even mean that he loves me? But if we say that God loved the world so much that he gave up his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him would not die but have eternal life with him, now that's a powerful story. That, that changes lives. So there's a couple very practical applications for us here. Trevin Wax has written a new book called This Is Our Time. If you follow the Gospel Coalition at all, you are guaranteed to have seen it. It's been, it's been kind of a big deal this past year. Um, it, it's been really, really well received. Um, but in this book, he talks about a lot of the false stories in our culture. So one of the major areas that he focuses on is in Hollywood, um, in the stories that Hollywood tells, the impact that these stories have on us. And so he says that when we evaluate stories, uh, or when we evaluate movies, whether or not they're appropriate, uh, we tend to put them into categories of good or bad based on things like violence, sex scenes, language. But he says that movies work on our hearts in much deeper ways. It's a really wise observation from him. So here's an example. When the live-action version of Beauty and the Beast uh, came out last year, last summer, a lot of Christians were calling for a boycott of it uh, because, if I remember right, a few weeks before the movie, movie was released, uh, Disney made this sort of random announcement that Beauty and the Beast would feature its first openly gay character. And so a lot of people were upset by that. A lot of Christian parents uh, decided to boycott the movie for that reason. And I understand the motivation. But I think it also reveals uh, that we need to change the way that we think about movies. We need to change the way that we think about uh, what makes a movie good uh, or bad. Because almost every single Disney movie teaches, be true to yourself and follow your heart. That story, that false story, has a lot more influence on your kids than the fact that one character in the movie happens to be gay. So if you set 100 kids down to watch this movie, and then afterwards you ask them, what did you learn from the movie? Zero of them are going to say, homosexuality is a good thing. But a lot of them might, be, might say something like, you just have to be true to yourself and follow your heart. And that's a false story. So that, that story is much more dangerous than some of the smaller things in the movie, not to minimize those things. And I'm also not saying that you shouldn't let your kids see Beauty and the Beast. That was actually the only movie that I saw in theaters last year, and I'm pretty sure my wife and I already own it at our house. I'm just saying we have to think about movies more than just black and white of, you know, if it has X number of curse words, then it's a bad movie. Or if it has too much violence, then it's a bad movie. And if it doesn't have those things, then it's fine. Hollywood is, it's based out of our culture. They don't buy into the true story of Jesus Christ. So every single movie that they make is based on some false story or another because that's all they have to go on. They don't, they don't buy into the false or to the true story of Jesus Christ. So it just means that we have to be discerning as parents. We have to notice these stories and, and be willing to talk to our kids about them, to say, look, here's, here's the story that this movie teaches, and then here's the story that Jesus teaches. Here's the differences between these two. And of course, that's not just for parents. We're all influenced by movies. Um, so for all of us, even for ourselves, we should be thinking about these things as we watch movies. And then, of course, to counter this, we have to know the true story. 
We have to be immersed in the true story. Right? So we should read it. Make it a personal goal to read one of the gospel accounts every year, to remind yourself of the story. Talk about the story with your friends, with your spouse, with your children. When you see someone baptized, let that remind you that you were dead and buried with Christ and were raised with him. When we take the Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to do uh, right after this, be reminded of the way that Christ gave his body and blood for you. Be reminded, as Paul says here, that God nailed your debt to the cross and triumphed over the devil. Immerse yourself in the story. So let's move on to the third chunk now. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So Paul's reminded us of the true story, and then he's warned us against believing false stories. And then, then in this third chunk, he calls us to live in the story. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's amazing how verses in the Bible written 2,000 years ago can speak so directly even to our culture today, right? This, this speaks directly to be true to yourself. It says, seek the things above. You live with Christ, so don't be true to yourself. You died to yourself. Be true to Christ. And then verse 4 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And I know preachers say that all the time, and I've probably said it about other verses, but this one's got to be up there. That's a good one. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Usually when we think about Christ appearing in glory, it's when he comes back on the clouds, um, appearing in power and glory in an instant, we don't usually think about what Paul says here, that we, we will appear with him in glory. We will share in his glory, in a sense. If we're being honest, for some of us, this verse actually makes us a little uncomfortable. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I will not give my glory to another. And he doesn't. God does not give his glory to anyone else. But he does share his glory with us, in a way. Romans 8, verse 30 says, Those he justified, he also glorified. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4 is even more direct. It says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature. Share in the divine nature. That's a pretty bold statement. That's a confusing one, too. Now here's an illustration um, that might help us understand. I didn't come up with this, but I think it's helpful. If we think of God as the sun, that's S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. If you think of God as the sun, for us to share in his glory means in a way, at least in this illustration, that he makes us sun rays. So a sun ray is, it's more than just light, 
but it's also not actually the sun itself. So everything outside in the daytime receives God's light, but a sun ray is more than that. It's, it's like a physical piece of God's energy and light and heat and power. But the sun ray doesn't take anything away from the sun. Right? You take all the sun rays away and the sun's still there. And whether the sun puts off two rays or a thousand rays or a million rays, the sun is still the sun. It still has all of its power. And so in a way, it's like he makes us sun rays, that we, we are invited to share in the relationship that God has between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He invites us to share in this glorious relationship. So as one commentator puts it, don't let your ambitions be earthbound. We've been brought into the greatest story ever told. C.S. Lewis memorably puts it this way. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't let your ambitions be earthbound. It's so easy to get so focused on the things that we can see. Remember the true story. Remember who you are, who God has made you, and the story that he's invited us into. And then finally, as we close today, if you've never accepted the invitation to participate in this story, then I want to invite you to become part of the story today. So in, in every great story, there's always a part at the story where the character doesn't want to buy into the story, right? So for Frodo to carry the ring to Mordor, for Luke Skywalker to go into the training to become a Jedi, for the Pavinci children to walk through the wardrobe to Narnia, for Simba to return to Pride Rock to take his place as king. And in almost every story, they refuse to go at first. It all just seems like too much to believe. So what about you? You know, maybe you've heard this invitation a hundred times before. And if that is the case, then I want to invite you for the hundred and first time. And the Bible is so much more than a book of rules. Christianity is so much more than just being a good person. It is an invitation to be a part of the greatest story ever told. And today could be your day. Today could be the day when God nails your sin to the cross. When God buries you with Christ and raises you to life with him. When God invites you to be part of his family. And when God starts making you to be like he is. And just like every great story, the invitation's there. And for you, the story begins when you accept it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for inviting us into your story. Father, we don't deserve it, and we could never earn a role in this great story. Father, we ask that you would make your story real to us today. 
We pray that we would live in your story day by day, that your spirit would guide us more and more to participate in the story that you have invited us into and in the story that you are telling in the world. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen.